questions in the studies on exactly what occurred upon the cross. Some people, it seems like they've even gone a little bit far to kind of describe all of the torture and the, well, just the, all of the gore that, that occurred there. And, and it did. There's no doubt about that. And, and really, it wasn't so much about the physical, but it was that that pointed to the spiritual. And so again, Easter, I think Easter a lot of times has been compared to Christmas. And look at it from a secular standpoint. You got a fat man in a red suit or a big bunny. You got flying reindeer or rabbits that lay eggs two weeks off from school or one week off from school. But there's really no comparison. Matter of fact, if I was going to compare Easter with any secular holiday, I would probably compare it to Valentine's Day. You know, Valentine's Day, the day that we prove our love to one another by the sending of cards, by the giving of candy or the delivery of flowers. These little trinkets that we use to express an emotion to a loved one. Something that I remember doing as far back as elementary school. I remember I went to Catholic school the first three years of my schooling and I I can remember having to sit down and write out, there was 60 kids in my class, it was during the baby boom days, and 60 kids in my class, and I would have to write out 59 Valentine's cards, and they were just little folded pieces of paper, but everybody had to write one for everybody in the class. But as with God's dynamic nature of love, there's always sacrifice involved. Again, from a secular standpoint, well, a Valentine's card takes effort, requires emotion, demands expense. It's estimated that over 190 million Valentine's cards are sent every year. Having to go at that little stand in the grocery store and look at all of those cards, and I think, okay, what card is going to rightfully express my emotion? Actually, I just look at the first one there, grab it, and go from there. Valentine's candy, some sweets for your sweetie, just handing her a Hershey's bar is unacceptable. It's got to be a $30, $40 box of C's candy. The furnishing of flowers or the killing of the pretty part of a plant for the expression of emotion. All of these things that will last about a week, except for the candy. That usually doesn't last more than a day. Now, it's funny. Not only are these things used to express love, but I was kind of thinking they're also used to appease anger. Kind of drawing a page from the husband's handbook here a card can be given if the husband has suffered a minor violation of the wife's laws candy is for some sort of misdemeanor and then flowers are reserved for the felonies so we have all these modern symbols of this day valentine's day so when you see them in the store that you're reminded you're reminded through the outline shape of a heart, white doves and pudgy-shaped winged angels with bows and arrows that we call Cupid. Well, why am I going off on Valentine's Day? It's Good Friday. It's Good Friday. Because Valentine's Day has become a quagmire of ways to express love, either real or imagined. But it was on Good Friday that the love of God was displayed to mankind. And again, we can focus on, and we have done it. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it. We can, we can focus upon all of the gore and all that, and it was true sacrificial love that Jesus paid the price. And I got to realize that it should have been me that was, that was experiencing all of that gore. And, and there's just so many areas of scriptures to go to, but we can't overlook the love that God has lavished upon us. 
the love that God has for mankind and the magnitude of it, that he would make the determination to become God incarnate, never ceasing to be God, always being God, but becoming man, coming in a way that we would be able to understand, the way that we would be able to comprehend. Why was it necessary to understand God? Why was it necessary to comprehend God? So that we would know the great love with which that he has loved us, that we would understand it and we would be receptive of it. Good Friday, it demands that we know and understand the genuine love of God for all of mankind, not through the temporary giving of some sort of gift, but through the sacrifice of a son. Good Friday, we celebrate that love that found us. Because again, man man has been created with a desire for eternity. We understand the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we knew that there was something there. And we searched in so many ways. And well, I just was raised in the way that I was searching through religion, but I was never met there. And then finally, somebody shared the gospel with me in a way that penetrated and got through. And the love of God came pouring down upon me. The love of God, the love of God that I continue to realize today that it's not about my perfection. It's not about me keeping a set of standards or anything along those lines. It's just about me being receptive of the great love with which the Father has for me. So if you brought your Bible today, and if you didn't, there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. But if you brought your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 4. We'll spend the majority of our time there. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. The Apostle John, he starts in verse 7, Beloved. It means he's speaking to born-again believers. It means that he's writing to us, Calvary Chapel, Ontario, those there Friday night today. Beloved, let us not or I'm sorry, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest or revealed toward us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When it comes to his love for us, God cut through all of the quagmire of human expression of love, and he has simply given us one symbol, one symbol of the great love with which he has for us. And, well, the story, I think, as far as this symbol of love is best spoken of, in the Gospel of John, you can stay in the Epistle of John, but in the Gospel of John, Jesus made a very profound statement in John chapter 6, it won't be up on the screen, but in John chapter 6, verse 44, he said, no one can come to me, nobody can come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ, he says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up that last day. Now, there's a great debate as far as what does it mean to be drawn to Jesus Christ. There are some who say, well, it means a wooing of a person. Come on, come on, here's salvation, here's the love of God and Jesus, come on. And there's others to say, well, I, I heard one theologian say that when you go to a water, or, or I'm sorry, a well of water, 
you don't go to that well and say, come on, water, come on up. You drop a bucket and you draw it up. Really, though, it kind of is somewhere in between. But the debate rages, but really there's no debate about it. Again, John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up that last day. Well, there's no scripture that says draw means this. So how does the Father draw mankind? Well, if you turn over to John, I'll turn over there, but John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said again, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So what does that mean? Is he speaking about his resurrection? It is Easter time. Well, he's not really speaking of his resurrection. He's not speaking of that at all. He's speaking of Good Friday. It says, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. And so if Jesus would be lifted up, and he's saying, if, if I be crucified, I will draw all men unto myself. This is the method by which God draws people to himself. And so it's all about the cross. Now, is it a wooing? Is it a pulling? What is it? Does it really matter? Does it really matter? See, we need to lift up Christ. We need to display the cross of Christ because the cross of Christ is God displayed to mankind of the magnitude of the love that he has for us all. It's where he went to show man that the heart of God, the heart of God is towards all of humanity. And, and the only way that I can truly and accurately display the cross is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through the spoken word. Again, it's Easter season, so all week, at least on CNN's website, there were their attempts at displaying who Jesus really is. Uh, I saw something today. I didn't read the article. I usually don't read them because I don't read fiction. Or, uh, yeah, I don't read fiction. I'm usually into nonfiction, like the truth. But... Did Mary? Ma they asked the question, did Mary Magdalene bankroll Jesus? Like, where do they get this stuff from? You know, there's still the thing about Mary Magdalene and Jesus being married and having kids. Where do they get this stuff from? It's never been proved. There's all of these little guesses and estimations and all of these things that are always popping up. But the day is all about Jesus Christ. And what are they trying to do with all of these things? And it's not necessarily them. It's the one who pulls the strings in the background Nonetheless, they're trying to take our focus off who Jesus is. And if you lose focus of Christ, you lose focus of the cross. And if you lose focus of the cross, you lose focus on the great love with which God has for all of mankind. And so God has given us his cross as a symbol of his love. So going back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 tells us, and Good Friday reminds us that God is love. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, this is the third of three expressions in John's writings that help us to understand the nature of God. None of these is a complete revelation of God, but three facets that help us to be able to relate to who he is that are really beyond our understanding. We're told in John chapter 4 that God is spirit. God is spirit. Yes, God is spirit as to his essence. His essence is spirit. He's not flesh and blood. Now, Jesus took flesh and blood upon him for a period of time, but God is spirit, not flesh and blood. Jesus now has a glorified body, and one day we will have a body such as he had. 
that John had said a little bit earlier in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it does not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Speaking of that future spiritual body as we are in His presence, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So there's Jesus. He's here walking amongst men. He goes to the cross. He dies. He's buried. He goes into the tomb. But He's resurrected, resurrected to that new spiritual body. And it's going to be the same thing that happens to us. One day, everybody here, somehow, some way, barring rapture, is going to die. You're going to die. You're going to read in the newspaper... Pastor Mike is dead. He's assumed room temperature. He's a goner. That's going to be in there, and it's going to be true, but it's going to be at that time that I will never be more alive than I have ever been in all of my life because I will assume a spiritual body, and I will be in the presence of my God. And again, it was given to us and proven to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and, again, his crucifixion, but his resurrection even as the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus was the first fruits, the first of so many more to come. Open the gates of heaven to all of humanity. So, by being by nature spirit, God is not limited by time and space the way his creatures are, but God inhabits all. Secondly, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, we are told that God is light. It refers to his holy nature. In the Bible, light is a symbol of holiness and darkness is a symbol of sin. God cannot sin because he is holy, holy, holy. Because we have been born into his family, we have received his holy nature as well. Today, it is accounted to us. Later on, it's going to be realized. Sin will no longer have its effect over us. But because Christ died on the cross, and because you have entered into a right relationship with Jesus Christ, think of the magnitude of this. There was the time before you were saved. And the Bible tells us, John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You knew that you were a sinner. If you're honest with yourself, if you're not saved today, if you're honest with yourself, you know that you're a sinner. You, you know that you've lied. You've known, that, you've known that you have spoken evil of a friend or family or whatever it might be, and we can just go down the list and the evidence is overwhelming. Of sin, of righteousness, everybody knows that there's a God. There's not a culture that exists on earth that does not worship something. Even the atheist worships himself. Of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that's the hardest part, is knowing that there's judgment at the end. Maybe ignoring it, maybe doing whatever is necessary to delay it or whatever it might be, but understanding that judgment is imminent. And as judgment is imminent, well, we can either eat, drink, and be happy for tomorrow we die, or we can deal with it. And there's God's holiness. God cannot sin, but as God has given us, accounted to us this justification, now he chooses to see me just as if I have never sinned. What does that do? It appeases guilt. No longer am I guilty before a holy God. Now I can enter in before a holy God very boldly understanding that it's God who has loved me to such a degree that he would hang upon the cross. Once again, I look to the cross and I see 
this expression of God to mankind. And then we're told, again, that God is love. Make no mistake, this does not mean that love is God. It doesn't work that way. Love does not define God, but God is the ultimate definition of what love is. True, sacrificial love. Where else do you experience true, sacrificial love? Maybe with your parents, but even after about 18 years, that kind of runs thin. Where else do you experience true, sacrificial love but in the presence of Jesus Christ and through those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Where can you be who you are and have it be okay? Okay, I can come into the body of Christ, or I should attend a church that I can come into the body of Christ, not presenting myself as a perfect person, but just simply a sinner who has been saved by grace. Because again, of the magnitude of the love which God has, de- has displayed towards me, I find a peace, comfort, and a release of guilt in that. And since I've been released of guilt by God, how much should we be released of guilt before one another, even somebody that I may have wronged? And so God is love. God is love. Love is defined by my Lord. So as by way of remembrance, Good Friday, Good Friday is a day to remember the great love and with which God has loved you. And because God loves you, look at what he did. Look at the magnitude of what he did. The first thing that I see is what is repeated in verses 9 and 10. This is the love that God was manifest toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him in this love. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent. God sent. He sent. He understood that we were in a predicament that we could do nothing for. I mean, this was the plan from the beginning of the world. But we were in a predicament that we could do nothing for ourselves. And so God intervened, God sent. This is a conscious and deliberate physical act. When one gives a gift, it's usually not about the gift, but the heart behind it. God loved mankind to such a degree that he sent. And the idea here is he sent him on a mission for a particular purpose. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God gave. God gave his son to be that sacrifice. It's what we see in Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham. It was required of him, though. God told him, get your son, your only son, the son that you love, and take him and and, and give him as a sacrifice, a burnt offering. This was the son of promise, and there was so much tied up in that, but the only thing that Abraham knew is that that's what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to offer the son whom he loved. And and again, as a father, as a grandfather, putting myself in that place, how in the world do you do that? But God's wanting us to know and us understanding the magnitude of the sacrifice and the magnitude of the love with which he has because he gave his son. Why did he give his son? He gave his son to go to the cross. What happened upon the cross? Well, again, Pastor Mike, it's all about the the violence that was done and and all of that. Well, not really. That's not what really vexed the heart of the Lord. The thing that vexed the heart of the Lord, yeah, it's what occurred upon the cross, but it was that which you couldn't see, but the word tells us what happened. See, as the son was upon the cross, it wasn't about the punishment of man. That was exterior to see what was going on in the interior. Jesus went to the cross to receive punishment from the Father. He went to the cross to receive punishment from the Father. Why? 
because all of the sin, the whole burden of sin at that moment was dumped upon him. Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook the son upon the cross? Yeah, well, the problem with sin is it separates. Just as surely as you were separated from God as you were a sinner, you were enmity with God and had no relationship with God. Again, maybe you search for that in so many different areas until God's love found you, but you understand that. But there's Jesus Christ upon the cross, and he's taken the sins of the world upon himself. So for that very moment, as he uttered those words, you have Lord God of the universe. We studied it in Colossians. Everything that was created was created by Jesus Christ. He was there at the beginning. He was there eternity past. And, and, and for the very first time in all of history, he's experiencing sin, and he's experiencing the separation that sin brings so that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The thing about it is, it's just a perception. It's a perception of the separation from God. Never have we truly been separated from God. And so Jesus Christ, he paid the price. And he's the only one who could pay the price. Why? Because he didn't deserve it. He didn't sin. He didn't sin at all, but he was willing to go to the cross. Why? Because it was the plan all along, and God sent this son. It was God's plan to send his only begotten son to die because you are a sinner. Not an afterthought, but the definite purpose of God since the beginning of the world. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 12, it speaks of the Lord's ministry. It says, in him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption. You were headed for destruction, you were headed for hell, but God redeemed you. He saw value in you, and he paid the price to redeem you. And the price paid to redeem you was the death of his son. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And once again, never forget the magnitude of divine forgiveness. This is forgiveness, well, God chooses to completely remember no more. Now, don't say it out loud because we don't want to know. But what was the worst sin you've ever committed? Don't say it out loud. We don't want to know. Why? Because, well, not that you need my forgiveness, but there's always going to be that, that remembrance. Well, with God, you confess that sin. God already knows about it. And then he chooses to remember no more. Divine forgiveness. We have forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's completely wiped the slate clean. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Can you imagine what the riches of God's grace is, the magnitude of that? Which he made to abound towards us. So we have all the riches of God's grace that abounds, that is directed towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will? In the Old Testament, man never really understood the magnitude of grace, although they really did understand the magnitude of the law. But now, the magnitude of God's grace is revealed in that the law was always used to direct us, not to judgment, but to direct us towards the grace of God. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, 
that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And so all of these things, simply because God sent. And then secondly, because God loves you, he sent his son for you. You have to make this personal. You have to make this personal. If you don't make it personal, then it has no effect upon your life. Because what did God desire? God didn't desire to have a relationship with mankind. God doesn't desire to have a relationship with Calvary Chapel, Ontario. God desires to have a relationship with you. He desires to have a personal relationship with you. And it's because you're a sinner that Christ came and died on the cross. If you see it any other way, then it does you absolutely no good. You need to see that I'm a sinner, and because of my sin, Christ had to pay that price upon the cross. This was not an accidental after effect of salvation. This was God's plan all along. God wanted to save Mike Ursioli. God wanted to save you, and you were on his mind. God thinks of us. We're told many times in the scripture that God personally thinks about you, and he's not thinking about you and how he can get you. He's thinking about you simply because he loves. Think of your spouse. If you've been married for any length of time, remember when you first met your spouse? What did you do? You went home and you read, you wrote their name in a book and you, know, you just thought about them, all, all that little sweetie pie kind of stuff and that. I mean, I did the same thing. And, you know, you just think of that person. And, and when you leave them, you think about when's the next time that we're going to be together. And, you know, they got all these sappy songs that they've written about all that stuff. You think about them all the time. Well, God was in love with you. And God has thought about you all the time. Not all the time in our, how, we com, how we consider time, but all the time in how God considers time. That means, again, eternity past and eternity future. That means that God has always thought about you and always will be thinking about you. And again, we've got to see and understand the magnitude of love that that encompasses. We are all God's purpose for salvation, and your salvation was the result of God sending now, the Bible is very clear. Who did God send Christ for? John 3, 16, God loved the world. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That means all humanity. That means all humanity past and all humanity future. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And the idea here is it's confirmed in those who believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, Paul said, To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now Paul knew that not all were going to be saved, but I'm all things to all men, because God desires for all men to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so what did Paul do? He displayed the cross of Christ. I displayed the cross of Christ. See, there was a time in Acts chapter 17 that he displayed the wisdom of men, and he kind of used certain poets and whatnot of, of Athens and kind of tied the gospel to that. And then after he left Athens, he went to Corinth, and then in 1 Corinthians, he wrote about the time when he went to Corinth, his state of mind. And he says in chapter 2, verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined, I made the conscience decision, not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? 
because nothing else really matters. The church must display Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is he saying there? The cross. I displayed the cross of Christ or, or that logo of love, that display of love that God has for all humanity. Romans chapter 5, verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift, salvation by grace, came to all men, resulting in justification of life. We should all be able to see ourselves somewhere in all of that. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 in this, the love of God was manifest toward us. To manifest means to reveal. To reveal his love to you beyond a shadow of doubt. This is the love that God has for us, that he died upon the cross. But it's not just a past thing. It's that gift that just continues to keep giving. God's love must continue on in our lives and through our lives. In Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39, it speaks of the magnitude of love, but it also speaks of the endurance of love. Because see, the good thing about it is, the magnitude and the endurance of God's love is not based upon who you are. It's not based upon how you are if you're a born-again believer. And you're either a born-again believer or you're not. You either have the love of God or you just have the love of God displayed towards you if you have yet to receive Him. But the magnitude of the love of God based upon you being a child of God Again, we see it very clearly written here in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 7, he was going through a lot of confusion because he wanted to walk strongly with God, but he found himself not always doing so. What he didn't want to do, he found himself doing. What he wanted to do, he didn't always find himself doing. Kind of like you if you fasted this week. You didn't want to eat. Some of you cheated. I don't know who. Some of you cheated. Because it's an easy thing to do. It's an easy thing. Now, it doesn't mean that the whole fast fell apart if you did or whatever. You're not condemned. You're not separated. You just have to find a new church if we discover who you are. But sometimes I fail. Sometimes I fail. And I often wonder, how could God, how could a holy God love me? See, you all here think because I'm Pastor Mike, I'm perfect, but I got some bad news. Well, my wife's here, she doesn't. And some of you I've known for a while, you probably don't. Some of you have seen me on the golf course, and you probably wonder if I'm even saved. And so I guess there's a lot there. But nonetheless, sometimes I do. I, I think, am I even saved? How could I think that thought? And that's what Paul was going through in Romans chapter 7. How could I do that act? How, how, how could I say that to somebody? How could I wander over there, be involved in that? But then again, he came to that most wonderful of conclusions in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now, because of the cross of Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we know that all things work together for the good. But again, there comes those times when we think, did I blow it? Did I blow it in that it cannot be repaired? But Paul's putting that fear to rest as well in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, once again, this is not the love that we have for Christ. That can be fickle. That's based upon who I am as a human. This is the love that Christ has for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Or maybe to put it in terms of what we're talking about tonight, who can separate us from the cross? Who can separate us from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Shall tribulation... Well, I've been through some tribulations. We all have, and sometimes, yeah, I can wonder, does God even love me? Or distress. I've been in distress, and I wonder, do I even love God at times? Or persecution. How can a God who loves me allow this to happen? Or, or, or famine, some, or nakedness, or peril. Sometimes it doesn't seem like my necessities are being taken care of. Does God still love me? And, or sword. We don't have to deal with, or sword but there are Christians across the world today that are dealing with the or sword part. How could God allow that to happen? Those students, 140-some students that were just murdered in um, Kenya, did God still love them? Well, I can guarantee you this, based upon what we're going to read here and the rest of this, they're in the presence of God right now. They're not having to deal with it anymore. They're in the presence of the Lord. And Paul says in verse 36, as it, as it is written, for your sakes we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And what Paul's saying there is, so that you would know all of these things, I have given my life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. I have put myself in harm's way because all of humanity needs to know this and understand it. Verse 37, yet in all of these things, we're more than conquerors. Again, we're fighting from the standpoint of victory through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, and it means that I have come to a full realization of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The cross, the cross is the symbol of God's love that keeps giving and will give for all eternity. Never will the cross not reflect the love of God. It's that which I'm able to hold on to. It's that which I need to embrace. It's that which I need to personalize. This cross was given for Mike, that Mike would be able to spend eternity with his Savior who loves him and gave his life for him. So based upon this great manifestation of love, what is to be our response? Well, 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's got to start here. When it says one another, it doesn't mean just in church. It needs to extend out of the church as well. And so he's speaking again to beloved, saved brothers and sisters. If God so loved us, and we've just proved that God did, then we ought to, or it means we have an obligation to display that love. And so how can I best love my brethren? How can I best love those people outside this wall? Displaying the Christ. Displaying the Christ upon the cross. Because that's how God displayed love to me. I just take what God has displayed to me and I display it to others. And the idea here is if I do that, then the others who receive of it, they'll do that. And this is something that's been going on for 2,000 years. I've said it before, pick an apostle. One of them you're probably spiritually related to because they went out and they shared the gospel. might have been some other disciple, unknown disciple, but it doesn't matter. They went out and they shared the gospel, and they shared the gospel, and that 
faith to faith to faith, that procedure's been going on for some over 2,000 years, and at some point it arrived at your heart. And because you've got a line of believers for the past 2,000 years that led to your doorstep, God saved you. People who were faithful in displaying the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus gave the news to his apostles just before the Mount of Transfiguration and told them that he was going to die but he showed them, he showed them that transformed body, that as he has died and was resurrected, they will die and be resurrected as well. And they will be resurrected into that new, into that glorious life. Turn over, if you have your Bible, to Matthew chapter 20, 27. It's the crucifixion of Christ. We'll close here. We'll celebrate the communion meal. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Jesus is upon the cross at this time. And it says in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour, the sixth hour would be noon, until the ninth hour, that would be three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness over all the land. And the idea there is, for that period of time, man had no hope. Man had no hope. That's the picture of the darkness. What do I mean by that? There's Jesus Christ. He's the only Savior that there is. And now sin has been placed upon him. As sin has been placed upon the only hope that mankind has, for that period of time, again, there's that separation. Man's got no hope. Man is in total darkness. What's the symbolic description of hell? Outer darkness. That's what's existing over all of the world. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, the man is calling for Elijah. They misunderstood him. They, of course, those who were standing there didn't understand the word of God anyway. Verse 48, immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. So again, they look to Christ kind of as they look to Christ today, just somebody who's able to do the experiential without seeking the spiritual. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Probably what he yielded out there is what we see in the gospel of John. It is finished. God's plan for the salvation of man has been completed. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and rocks were split. You've got this picture of the veil of the temple, some 40 feet high, six inches thick, and it's like somebody grabbed it and tore it in half. And the idea of the Holy of Holies is open to all of humanity. And when it says here that the earth quaked and the rocks split, well, that was the same thing that was going on back in Exodus chapter 19 at the giving of the law, but now here's the giving of grace. Giving of the law, the earth quaking and the rock splitting speaks of the power of God in judgment. Here it speaks of the power of God and the giving of grace. Verse 52, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, these are people who were dead and buried, and now they've come back to life. Again, there's a picture here for people to see the magnitude of what occurred upon the cross. 
didn't happen right at that moment because Jesus had to be the first fruits. He had to be resurrected first. That's why we have that little parenthetical in there. But nonetheless, they still came as a picture of what occurred upon the cross. Verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. What was the centurion saying in that? I've seen thousands of people die. I've seen, well, I wouldn't say millions, but I've seen thousands of people die, he could say. Possibly in battle, he, maybe they even died in his hands. He probably was over special detail that did crucifixions, and this was not the first. There was thousands of crucifixions. I've seen thousands of people die, but I have never seen anybody die like this man. And so 2,000 years ago, nobody has ever died like that man. Nobody has ever died taking sins from anybody. Nobody has ever died giving of his life so that all humanity may live. Nobody has ever died and opened the gates of heaven. And it touched the heart of that man to such a degree that he saw that which those who should have known couldn't see. And so we are the ones who should know. We are the ones who need to see. We need to see and understand the magnitude of this death. You need to take it and you need to embrace it into your heart. Today's the day when it's scheduled to do so on the calendar, but you need to do so every day of your life. Why? Because when you embrace it, you embrace the magnitude of what occurred upon the cross, and you realize the great love with which God has for you, then and only then are you willing to share it with somebody else. Only then, when you realize how close you were to death and destruction and damnation, only then are you willing to share that with somebody else who is going towards condemnation. And so we've got this great love that God has had for us. We need to understand that, yeah, there's expressions of love in Valentine's Day and Christmas, and it's fun. I enjoy Christmas and all of that. But it's what occurred today between noon and three thousands of years ago that has made all of the difference in all of humanity. He changed your life. He changed your life, and before your life, he opened the gates of heaven. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that this message, this message is plain, and this message is clear, and this message is for all of humanity. Lord, as this message is for us, and Lord, I'd like to think the majority of everybody here has received of this message, Father, and has obtained the salvation that you have freely offered. But Lord, I also pray for those who haven't, that Lord, our intention tonight was to simply lift up Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so, Father, we're preparing to partake of this communion meal, this communion meal that we look back in remembrance and remember how Christ has taken care of all of my sins. But also, Lord, we partake of this communion meal and look forward that one day I'll be with you. But as for today, may our faith be strengthened and our hope increased based upon, Lord, this life-changing event that continues to give even today. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would bless our communion meal, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, the Apostle Paul pins these words that we so often look to when it's time for communion. It says, For I received from the Lord. Have you?